Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to tell you about something really cool that we're giving away with this series. I'm preaching these sermons because I'm convinced that when we talk about or think about Jesus as the Messiah, we attach little or even no meaning to that phrase, the Messiah. It's my hope in this series that we'll better understand how rich and important that term is. And so we created this devotional booklet for the series that takes 18 passages of scripture from the Old Testament that Jewish people thought of when they thought of and longed for the upcoming Messiah. With each of those passages, we've connected a brief daily devotional thought that kind of connects to the idea that the passage teaches about the coming Messiah, about who Jesus will be. My hope, and I believe this is going to happen, is that when you read these devotional booklets, you will have a better understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And out of that, you will appreciate Jesus more, and you'll appreciate how important and world-changing his birth was. You can download one of those booklets by going to wilsonville.church slash messiah. That's wilsonville.church slash messiah. I hope you do that. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Today we're going to finish our series of sermons on Jesus as the Messiah. And I'll tell a story to begin. I, I think I've told this story in a sermon before, so you have to forgive me if you heard it. I only have a few good stories in life, and I like this one. And so my wife's heard it 15 times already. Um, I, I was at that golf tournament that I actually mentioned earlier uh, that, that Ryan, the pastor of the church that we're doing the candlelight service with tonight, play at uh, and together. It's, it's, a, it's a thing for pastors and Christian leaders. And I, I left uh, kind of feeling guilty going to this golf tournament because I thought that Bryn was going to come and it was when Hudson had just been born. So we had like a, you know, one and a half, close to two-year-old named Hazel. And we had our, our son who was, I don't know, like three months old or something like that, maybe less. And, and I thought Bryn was going to come. And then like a week before we started, I don't know, we didn't know what it was like to have two kids. And we're just like, wait a minute, how's this look? And there's a lot of times when you need to be quiet and we have no ability to do that as a family. We had no ability to do that as a family before Hudson was born and then all of a sudden uh, he just brought a new level of loudness and and so they decide not to come and so I'm abandoning my wife and I've often said that like having one kid you know like if you go out and play basketball with your friends or go to a movie without your spouse you feel fine but once you've had a second kid you feel like you're abandoning your spouse that's how I always felt and so then I'm like going hey I'm out of here Bryn like I'm see ya, good luck, I hope you don't kill him on accident or something, you know, like, she, we barely knew how to parent, and then we had two of them, it's incredible, and then, so I left, and I was going to be gone three days, and I decided after the golf tournament finished, and there was this award ceremony, I did not win, um, and uh, if you were wondering, and, and I decided, okay, I'm just going to leave Coeur d'Alene right now, and I'll get back early, and I'll surprise him, and so I just jetted out of there. I packed so fast. I was like, my wife is going to love me. And I'm thinking Hazel is going to be so excited to see me. 
she's going to be pumped, right? And so I try to make it before bedtime, which I do not do. But the next morning, I go into Hazel's room to wake her up, and I think, I'm dad of the year. She has no, I'm dad of the century. I'm dad of her whole life, you know? Like, she's going to be so happy. She has no idea her dad's come home. This is going to be an incredible moment. And I walk in there when she wakes up, and she looks at me and goes, I want my mommy. <laughs> All right, good. Just turned back around and got Bryn and went golfing. No, I'm just kidding. But um, So I, I tell you that story because I, I wasn't really hurt. My kids don't hurt me in those kind of ways because I know what it's like to be a kid. But, but when somebody doesn't want your presence, when they don't want to be with you, it's, it's a really hurtful thing. And I think we all know, whether you're a three-year-old or a a 90-year-old, we all know the pain of when somebody doesn't want to, to be with you, right? Like, you can think back to your childhood, and if you ever invited somebody to spend the night at your house or to come to your birthday or to hang out with you, and, and they gave you a no, and it just kind of left you thinking like, why, you know, why don't you want to spend time with me? Or, you know, the big, you, you can remember being a kid and the, the big thing was like if somebody made you mad, you said, I don't want to be your friend anymore, you know, like, and then you'd be friends again really fast. But do you remember that? And it's something about the presence of another person and rejecting a person through your presence. And then like, you know, you get into your teenage, early 20 years and, and probably the, the greatest form of this is, is when somebody breaks up with you, if you've ever been broken up with you, with, uh, with you if you've ever been broken up with, you, you know this pain. And I've said before, and I, and I stand by this even though I'm married 10 years now and I still like my wife, but in a lot of ways being broken up with is, is more painful than a loved one dying. And the reason for that is, in my humble opinion, in my experiences, is that the person that you've loved, if you're in love with this romantic interest, they are in essence saying, I don't want to be in your presence anymore. If you've just been broken up with, I'm sorry to describe it that way. I know, I was like sticking my finger in your wound or something, but, but I've been there, right? And when somebody dies, it's like they, they didn't want to leave. They had no choice and that's really painful. But when somebody breaks up with you, they're saying, yeah, I don't want to spend the rest of my life with you. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to be in your presence. At least that much, you know? And, and we've, we've felt it, you know, when we get older, we feel it still when, when maybe when your kids don't want to come home for Christmas, maybe you felt that, or, or maybe when, when somebody doesn't want to, maybe it's not your kid, but maybe your parent decides not to come over, or you're estranged from a parent, and, and they don't feel a need to see you, and you think, well, why? Why don't, why don't, you, want, why don't you want to be with me? I, I man, I this is just popping into my head, so do with it what you want. But uh, I, I happened to watch this just a couple of days ago. But if you remember the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, you know one of the great television shows of all time. Um, there's this incredible scene in Fresh Prince of Bel Air. You might already know what I'm talking about, where where his dad, who's who's abandoned him his whole life, he comes and he hangs out with him and. And he's making all these promises. They're going to go on a trip together and all this stuff. And, and the dad tries to sneak away from his son, Will, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And, um, and he, he just is like, yeah, I'll call you, I'll call you. And he leaves. And Will Smith, in his best acting moment, honestly, probably ever, probably his best acting moment ever, thinking about Will Smith, and I'm thinking it's his best acting moment ever, uh, he 
just loses it, just screaming about how he doesn't need him and, and he was never there for him anyway and he learned to ride a bike without him and he learned to drive without him and he'll get a career without him and he doesn't need him. And then he turns to Uncle Phil, you know Uncle Phil, and he falls into his arms and he says, why doesn't he want me? There's something about presence that's a really big deal. And we've all been hurt by somebody saying, I don't want your presence. And, and we may not think about this, but what the Christmas story does is it, it says God wanted to be with us. And we can overlook that because we don't feel it in the same ways as a friend at six years old saying, I don't want to be your friend, or a girlfriend saying, I don't want to be your girlfriend, or a, a, a parent or a child saying, I don't really care about hanging out. We don't feel it maybe in the same ways, but at least on this two days before Christmas Day, we at least should pause and say, wow, God wanted to be with me. That's the story of Christmas. Throughout the Bible, and, and I'm going to try to cover this uh, fairly quickly, but I think it's one of the most underrated subjects of the Christian faith. The presence of God is incredible. It's an incredible idea, an incredible theological topic. It's, it seems in some ways to be the entire story of the Bible is how people experience the presence of God. And frankly, if they experience the presence of God, in Genesis 3.8, right after man and woman are created, they sin, and then this is what happens right after they sin. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It, it seems, at least, that the first man and woman literally walked around with God in the garden. But then they rejected the ways of God, they sinned against God, and they were ashamed to be in his presence. But not only that, they were ushered out of the garden. And it seems to change forever the dynamic of how God is with people. And then if you read the story of Genesis, what happens is, is the majority of the world seemingly no longer has any relationship with God. There's this incredible flood story that is frankly sad, uh, horrific in many ways, difficult to deal with theologically, that we tell our five-year-old kids like it's nothing. But the story is about one single family being in right relationship with God hearing the voice of God while the rest of the world wasn't at all. They were rejecting God, they weren't hearing from God, they weren't listening to God, they weren't in the presence of God and God shows up and he says to this man named Noah, hey, you serve me, build a boat, I'm gonna flood the world and, and kind of start again. And so this, this presence of God idea travels through people but then this family ends up in Egypt by a series of events that we can't go into today and over generations they become enslaved to the Egyptians and then God brings them out of that slavery and they're a very big family at this point and then God makes them into a nation he shows up he shows up and, and fire on this mountain called Mount Sinai and he gives them the law and really what he most probably importantly gives them is his presence and then God's mad at him. He says, I'm not gonna go with you guys. I want you to leave here. I'm not gonna go. And, and, and then Moses says to him in Exodus 33, 15 and 16, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. 
How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And so the presence of God is extended from one family to a nation, the nation that we call Israel. And God dwells in the midst of Israel, first in a tabernacle, a giant tent that travels around with the people, And then when they come into the promised land, in the temple, this building that they build in order to house his presence in some ways. But even with the existence of the temple, the people longed to be in God's presence more. In Isaiah 9, 6, we read this incredible promise that it really is is about Jesus for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called counselor notice this next phrase mighty God everlasting father prince of peace the people have the presence of God in the temple but but they're looking forward to a time when the presence of God will be even stronger in Ezekiel 36 27 and 28 after a promise about the coming Messiah the man that we've been talking about in this series we read this my dwelling place will be with them I will be their God and they will be my people then the nations will know that I the Lord make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. And this is kind of like the big promise. It goes dark for hundreds of years. We don't really have the word of God coming to the people for hundreds of years. It's like God's presence is just not there in the way that it was before. So imagine that as a Jewish person just for a second. You know the importance of the presence of God. When God is present with you, you're blessed, things are good, your nation excels. When God is not present with you, it's bad. You're ruled by other nations, you end up in exile, you do evil things that you can't even imagine, it's bad. And then in our story we read this incredible thing. The angel has just spoken to Joseph, the man who would be the earthly father of Jesus. He said, you're going to have a a son. It's going to be the son of God, but you're going to raise him. And I want you to name him Jesus because he will save people from their sins. And then Matthew interjects with this very, very important statement that says God wants to be with you. He says, all this took place to fulfill What the Lord has said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Quick note that it's interesting language. It says what the Lord had said through the prophet and that's what we believe about the Bible as a whole. We believe that God spoke and, and he did that through people and so their personalities and their, their own language skills come out but it's all the word of God. It's authoritative, it's inspired and that's what we who are Bible-believing Christians think about the word of God and here that word of God came to a prophet and said, I want you to tell somebody this, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Now, this word fulfillment is a big deal in the book of Matthew. 14 times, at least, Matthew says, this happened so that this would be fulfilled. Or, this fulfilled 
something, fill in the blank. And so Matthew is making a big deal. We've said that in this series already. The, the whole point of Matthew in some ways is to say, look, you Jewish people believed that a man would come that you would call the Messiah or the Christ and he would set things right for your people. And I want you to know and believe that that person is Jesus. He has come. Jesus is the Messiah. And Matthew does this, I like this, in in, in several different ways, four ways that Matthew talks about fulfillment. He says that Jesus' teaching and life bring out the full meaning of the Old Testament. He says that Jesus' life and teaching restates and summarizes the historical Old Testament events. He says that Jesus perfectly obeys the Old Testament law. These are all ways that Jesus fulfills fulfills what has been written down, but this last one is what's at the heart of our passage. Jesus is a direct fulfillment of prophecy made in the Old Testament. If you don't know what prophecy is, it's a word that we really usually only use in church settings. Prophecy is basically, uh, in, in the sense that we're using it today, a prediction made by God about what would happen later. Now, there's other prophetic statements in the Bible. It's just about how God thinks about the current situations. But in in our context here, what Matthew is doing is saying, look, God told you that this would happen. And what I want you to know is that it did happen in the person of Jesus. And the prophecy comes from Isaiah 7, 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, there's a lot of debate here in this passage I mean most of what you read if you go look up this passage most of it is going to be a debate sadly about the interplay between the Old Testament and how Matthew uses the Old Testament like there's these predictions that seem to point to something at the time that they were written but Matthew is using them to point to Jesus and, and I'm not going to get into the debate because, frankly, I don't care the easiest way to understand it, but it's important that we understand it this way because it makes it even more amazing is that this is what, some, what many people, most people would call a dual fulfillment prophecy. That's, that means it was fulfilled once in the life of the person who it was first said to, and it was filled again in the life of Jesus. Just in case you were wondering, the first fulfillment was in this man named Ahaz. He was king of Judah, which was the southern tribe of Israel, there had been like a civil war. They had split up. He was the king of Judah, the king of Israel, and the king of Syria had come together. They had joined forces, and they wanted to fight against us, Syria. And they looked at the king of Judah, Ahaz, and said, hey, you you come alongside of us. We'll all join together, and we'll fight. And God is like, I don't want you to do that. I want you to trust in me. And Ahaz's solution is like, well, I'll join with the Assyrians, and I'll just form an allegiance with them. And so God makes this incredible promise in Isaiah 7, and and he says, look, a virgin or young woman is going to come, she's going to give birth, and then if you follow the, the passage further, it basically says, before he can know right or wrong, I'm going to take care of this problem for you. And God does. It's kind of amazing. Those two kings that I just mentioned, king of Israel and the king of Syria, they're dead before before like, you know, within five years or so of of when this prophecy is given. And I love what John MacArthur says about this. The birth of a son and the death of the kings 
would be the signs guaranteeing God's protection and preservation. And in the future, there would be a greater birth, the virgin birth of God incarnate to assure the covenant with God's people. God made this promise to a king, said, look, I'm gonna do something incredible, and he did it, and it is a wonderful reminder, it is wonderful proof that when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And God looked down and said, I'm going to send I'm going to come, I'm going to come, I'm going to come, and I'm going to make things right for you. Now, you might say, well, that's a cop-out. Like, I could take any old promise and, and apply it to Jesus, right? Like, how's that any proof at all? Like, you just grab some Old Testament passage and like, oh, Jesus did that, so let's, let's just say that it's about Jesus. But what makes it so staggering is that Jewish people long, long before Jesus existed, looked at this passage of scripture and they said, yeah, that's been fulfilled. That's been fulfilled one time, but we believe it is going to be fulfilled again, that God will come, he will be born of a virgin and he will dwell amongst us. The life application commentary says what I just said this way that uh, Jewish scribes thought the name Emmanuel was about the promised golden age when the messianic son of David would bring judgment on the wicked and blessing on the righteous. This was to be the ultimate time of God's presence manifest in Israel. So it's not like Matthew shows up and a lot of critics would try to say he did and shows up and is like, oh, there's that promise. Let's just apply it to Jesus. Sounds good. The Jewish people long before Jesus were like, God's gonna come to us. He's gonna be born of a virgin. He's gonna come to us and he will be in our presence. And they longed for the love that that would demonstrate. They longed for the help that that would give. They longed for the glory that that would bring their people. Now just another quick note and maybe you're not, it's not important to you at all but someday at some point you're gonna come across somebody who says, wait, that word that, that, is in Isaiah that means virgin, actually just means young woman. And so the, the gospel of Matthew, Luke, uh, the other writer that tells us about Jesus' birth, like they're just kind of making up that it's virgin because that's, that's not the right word. And I'll tell you, I've heard this before and, and in the past I was like, wow, that's bad, that seems bad, but I didn't look it up or anything. I just kind of thought, wow, that sounds bad. You know, we, we should deal with that. Somebody like Chuck right there should deal with that. Somebody that teaches theology, right? Um, and, and when I started to look it up this time, it's like, this is much ado about nothing. This is not that big a deal. There were two Old Testament words that could be translated virgin. I don't remember them off the top of my head. One of them could mean virgin or, and this is such a weird word, Hebrew is the worst language ever created. But there's the, this word can mean virgin or old married woman. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> like, what did you do right there? You, did you say virgin or old married woman? Those are like the two choices. But there was this other word, Alma, which is, is the word that is in Isaiah 7, 14, that can mean young woman, but it can also mean virgin. And, and every time... There's only one debated spot, but every time that it's used in the Old Testament, it is used for a virgin. And it seems that even when Isaiah wrote long before the birth of Jesus, long before we believed that a woman named Mary would be a virgin and, and, and would give birth to this child that we serve and live for, 
Isaiah said, look, somebody is coming who will be born of an Alma. And it appears that he was saying somebody is going to be born of a virgin. But all that is not nearly as important as this. Matthew's pausing in the narrative, the story of Jesus' life to say, this is why it happened. This is why the virgin birth, this is why an angel came to Joseph, this is why the whole Christmas deal is because God wanted to come down and be with us. That's awesome. (laughs) Just think about it for just a second how awesome that is. The Life Application Commentary again says, by identifying Jesus as God with us, Matthew continues a theme that permeated the Old Testament concept of God with his people. The significance of Matthew's interpretation of Jesus' name as Emmanuel, therefore, cannot be overstated. In Jesus, God is now with his people personally as their savior. This theme forms the heart of a personal relationship with Jesus that his followers come to characterize as his unique form of lordship. Jesus brings God's presence to us. Before there were these little glimpses, he'd show up in fire, he'd, he'd, he'd come in wind, he'd come in a still small voice. There was these incredible moments where the people got to see God and it was awesome. And sometimes I think, oh man, wouldn't that be great? Like if we could just see God show up in fire. But what Matthew is saying is the coming of Jesus ushered God's presence into our lives in a new and far better way because we don't have to worry about when it's gonna show up again. It allowed for us to be in the presence of God for eternity. What we believe about Jesus is that Jesus lived amongst people. He showed us what God was like and then he died a brutal, horrible death for our sins. He came back to life three days later. After several weeks, he ascended into heaven. But when he did that, he said, my Holy Spirit will come to you. And what we now believe is that every person who gives their life to Jesus is indwelled by the Spirit of Jesus, by the Spirit of God. Isn't that cool? God's presence no longer shows up on a mountain every now and then. We get lucky. Oh, I happen to see God today. If we give our lives to Jesus because of the incredible sacrifice and work that he did on the cross, then then God looks at us and says, I want to be at your birthday party. I want to be at your Christmas celebration. I want to be with you forever, and I will be. I'll be with you. That's amazing to me. I mean, when I think about the people in my life that in one way or another looked at me and said, I don't want to be with you, it's really painful. I can't think of of things that are more painful, frankly, than people looking at me and saying, I, like, this isn't working out, we got to talk, you know, or, or just not showing up at, you know, Christmas and birthdays, you know what I mean? Like, this is, this is painful, But when I think about how the God of the universe, and this is what makes him uniquely better, Hudson. (laughs) That's my son. Uh, When I think about how the God of the universe, this, this is what makes it uniquely better, as I was saying, is that God knows everything about me. And yet he wanted to be with me anyway. 
isn't the reason that you're guarded in your life that you don't share certain things that you would never tell people about that thing that you did or that thing that you thought, isn't the reason that we're scared to be fully known, that we're scared people will reject us and not want to be with us in whatever way anymore? Isn't that why it's hard to do like even you know church things like you go to a small group and it's really hard to open up even with people that hopefully you feel safe around because you just, Somewhere in there you know that somebody rejected you once and if you say this thing then maybe they won't want to be your friend or hang out with you or they won't look at you the same at least. And God looked at all of us. Every sin, every horrible, horrendous thought that we've ever had And said, I want to be with you so much that I'm going to come down from heaven to earth. I'm going to live amongst people. I'll die for you. I'll rise again and then I'll send my spirit if you'll accept the gift of my presence. That's amazing. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. What we celebrate at Christmas is is in essence this, that Jesus is God with us and he's God with us for all of us. Jesus is God with us for all of us. Anybody who chooses to accept his gift can have the presence of God and the presence of God, I promise you this, is the greatest thing that you will ever experience. There's a reason that the Jews, when they thought about the coming Messiah, looked forward to the presence of God because they knew when they had it, things were just so much better. I'll tell you, in my own life, it's the greatest thing I've ever experienced is the moments when I can, I can sense God moving the most in me. I believe that God is always with me. I said that last week in my sermon. Jesus promises, in fact, after he ascends into heaven, exactly what he says. He says, hey, go, go tell people about me, teach them to follow me, and by the way, I will be with you even until the end of the age. But when we experience God's presence, there's nothing like it. David sang, somebody that had experienced God in a very unique and powerful way. He wrote down the Psalms, if you've ever read the Psalms in the Bible. And he said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, than thousands elsewhere. I can, David, who's great, 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 keep going, grandson became Jesus, He would look at you and say, man, I just had to pray and hope that God would show up. And you people get to know that God dwells inside of you. That is the most incredible thing. Jesus is God with us for all of us that will accept his gift of salvation. And it's not only now, it's not like it's something that's gonna go away because right now we get to have God indwell us, to be with us, to whisper encouragement to us. In my darkest, worst days, God is always there saying, hey, it's gonna be okay. And it's not audible, I'm not crazy, it's just God whispering in some way that I can't describe to you, it's gonna be okay. Or God saying, hey, don't say that, that's stupid. Or hey, do say that because you need to say that to that person. When Satan attacks me, it's God saying, hey, you, 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 listen to me. Don't do what he says. Don't believe the lies. I'm with you. Listen to me. 
But even, and this is what's so great, if we accept Jesus as our Savior and the Holy Spirit indwells us, His Spirit indwells us, we get God now, but in eternity we get Him even more. The very end of the Bible, I'm not going to read it to you, describes this heavenly scene where we are in the presence of God in such a unique and powerful way that we don't need lights anymore. (laughs) Because He is lighting up our world in even, even a real way. Like a physical way because his presence is so strong. The coming of Jesus symbolized, it wasn't symbolized. The coming of Jesus was the coming of God to earth. And Jesus came so that God could be with all of us. And we go, well, how, do we, how do we know that, like maybe, you know, how do we know that that's true? And I'll tell you, it's because you read the rest of Matthew. You don't stop the story with the Christmas story and just end up believing. Like if Matthew had written Matthew chapter one, it's like there's a genealogy and there's this promise and there's this name given and all the things we've looked at in this series and, and Matthew one ended and that was it. I'd be like, I don't like, maybe, maybe. But when you look at the rest of the life of Jesus, It's like, wait a minute, this is God with people. I read this little anecdote. A doubter of God, an atheist you could call this person, said, if I told you that that guy over there was God, would you believe me? And this Christian responded, if he lived like Jesus, I would. John MacArthur said, the greatest outward evidence of Jesus' supernatural birth and deity, his godness, is his life. This is life. God came to be with us in the person of Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Craig S. Keener says, of all the world's faiths, only Christianity announced God who embraced our pain with us. There's no other religion like this. If you choose to believe another religion, you just have to know that you're not believing a religion that says God came to be with you. He wanted to be in your presence so much that he came to be with you. There's religions that say like God sent like a messenger to you and, and we believe God's done that for us but, but no other religion will say God wanted to show up and be with you. And so this day and this week as you celebrate Christmas please remember that you are celebrating when you celebrate the birth of Jesus that God came in the form of Jesus and that Jesus is God with us and it's for all of us who will place our faith in him. Let me pray that you'll know the presence of God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came to this earth, that you came as king, you came as son of God, you came as savior, but you also came as God. You are God and you came because you wanted to be with us. Lord, I am amazed at how the entirety of scripture points to the idea that you wanted a relationship with with us, with me. You created because you wanted to have this relationship. You keep us alive because you wanted to have this relationship. Instead of of just annihilating us and starting over, you came to earth because you wanted to have this relationship with us. Lord, you, you, you moved through your Holy Spirit on this planet in order to have more people understand who you are and what you've done so that, God, you can have a relationship with them and someday you'll return in order that we can be in your presence more fully than we already get to experience on this earth and that is an 
incredible story that God, the infinite being, the all-knowing and almighty one would want to be with me is one of the most, it's the most incredible truth I know. And I pray, God, that all of us would experience your presence and we'd experience it more and more. Lord, you know that I pray at night for my children as we pray about the things we want to dream about, I, I pray, God, that we would learn to love your presence more than anything else. And I pray for this church today, my church family, that we would love your presence more than anything else. I thank you, God, that when we gather together as a church body and we who are indwelled come together in this place, that you do meet us, God, and you use my words in different ways than you use them at Starbucks. And you, you move us, God, to make choices and help us. And it's... We experience you, God, and it's awesome, but we want it more, and I want it for everyone. Thank you, God, for loving us enough to want to be with us. It heals all of the hurts of rejection. Thank you. I pray these things in Jesus' name.